my name's Finley Martin, and you're listening to Scott and Paul's Rambling Podcast. Scott and Paul's Ramblin' Podcast. I'm Scott McLeary, joined as always by Paul Berg. Hello, Paul. Yo, hello. Okay. I have my I have my caffeine today. That's good. I have I have no Eldorado to plug. Oh. Oh, but I have had a pint already, so it's okay. Hooray for alcohol! Yay! I'm very excited for today's episode, Paul. Can you guess why? I can, I can. Could it be a certain interview you gave? Yes. I or a, had, I should say. Yes, I last Tuesday. I was meant to do a, a Skype interview with Finley Martin, formerly of Perth Lamb, now of Inside the Ropes. But, uh, we had a bit of technical difficulty where I could hear her, but he couldn't hear me. I don't know what the problem was, but then we ended up doing it over the phone and spoke with him for like over an hour. On the phone? On the phone. That's trippy. Yeah. <laughs> Luckily, my wife gave me a Tascam recorder. I can get a hold up to. I could hold up to the end of the phone and put it on speaker and record his. His his end of the convo. And then I had to move the microphone a different direction closer to my mouth <laughs> when uh, when I was speaking. Technical annoyance, but you got it done. Yeah, I found a way around it, and I'm glad I did because uh, it was a very good interview, as we'll, you'll hear later on. You are you are lucky people. Yeah, and uh, I sent him the questions beforehand. He had. Uh, some really good answers. He does uh, go on a bit, but as he says in the bit, this is a rambling podcast, and he feels like he was rambling himself. Mm-hmm. So he, he fits right in. If he, he fits into the mould. Mm-hmm. Yes. I'll, I'll talk a bit about the interview before we tell you what we're going to be talking about, and then at the end we'll throw over to to your interview. But uh, I talked to him about some books he's currently working on. Yeah. And uh, we're lucky to. Uh, he did uh, offer one to see further along with the book. Books he's currently working on that he would more than happily do another interview with. Sweetness. And uh, as you may have just heard at the start there, he uh, did a little intro for us. Yeah. When Scott did phone me to inform me that not only did he have an interview, but that it went very well and man did a soundbite for us, I was I was most impressed. Yeah, I reviewed you almost like ten minutes after it happened. <laughs> I did it early in the morning, then I had other stuff to do, but the whole day I'm not hearing, like, I just interviewed Sidney Martin. I still couldn't yeah. wrap my head around the fact that it yeah. happened. That wasn't, that wasn't me when I seen Black Sabbath. Yeah. Like, I've just seen Sabbath. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. You know, I am awesome. Yeah, I've mentioned them before in the show, uh, the guys at Eat Sleep Suplex Retweet. Uh, they also did a charity live, or part of a charity live stream last Sunday night for cancer research and that. That's a good cause. Good cause. I, I donated, I donated some money, and I'm, if you donated money, then I thank you as all for a good cause and that. But I, there were like nine people on the one show, which you can tell how, you can probably guess how that went. Yeah. But uh, I said a text to my brother and went, my God, this comes more for farce every week, this stuff, because if we were talking <laughs> to each other, who were going off topic. Kind of like us. Yeah. But, but it's, 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 we, could, we could do it with two people. Yeah. We could do it with just two people what they can do with nine. Yeah, but go completely off off course and talk crap. That's what people enjoy, hopefully. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully. 
Please like us, please. For fuck's sake, stick to the point. <laughs> we just did it again. Yeah. Anyway, I think my brother this one's more of a farce every week, and then he read it out and show, and they were a bit annoyed with me because I think they've tried to get Finn Martin before, and uh, they didn't get him. You're like, haha, I got there first. And they, ha-ha. Um, Steve, uh, the, the host, is like, well, excuse me, Mister, I interviewed Finn Martin. <laughs> <laughs> Like I say, Chelsea's an ugly colour on you, Steve. You're sitting there quietly thinking, yeah, I did. And you didn't. Ha! <laughs> Deal with it. Deal with it. Talk to my hand. <laughs> uh, other than that, well, uh, you, have you been up to anything in the week? Oh, well, um, not nothing particular. I did, um, not discover, but I did get really into a new band. If you've ever... If you've ever listened to a song uh-huh. or a band or an album that has almost moved you to real emotion, uh-huh. I I I was there with this band, Chronos uh, and the Lotus or something like that. I think is I'll need to check up on that again. But their album prevailed too, and in particular the song called "My Immortal" on it, it is. Quite honestly, one of the best songs I've heard this year. It is beautiful. It is a beautiful, beautiful song. Like, you get so... <laughs> you get so into it, you know? And it's it's not horribly heavy and female-fronted, but she has got a beautiful voice. Beautiful fucking singing voice. And the... My God, I could gush for the whole fucking show. But it's, I, f- I strongly recommend. Well, um, uh, well, not not too much. Just you know, watching, well, listening to the football, mm-hmm. hearing a phenomenal, well, hearing the end of a phenomenal game we probably should have listened to, as opposed to the fucking game we listened to, because the game we listened to was kind of shit and. It was Aberdeen Celtic, and Aberdeen ended up winning it one 0 The other game, yeah. which was Rangers Hibs, ended I five apiece. Ten I goals. I remember a little bit of I went for a walk at, at three nothing Hibs and came back. It was like four three Rangers. Yeah, like, yeah. What the fuck's going on? It it was so quick. We went and came out of the fucking traps. Hibs did and kind of swamped Rangers 3-0, and you think most teams don't come back from 3-0 deficit. No. But no, Rangers pulled it back to 3 all, and then 4-3, and then a second later, 5-3. Mm-hmm. And then a second after that, Hibs pulled it back to 5-4. Mm-hmm. And then right at the death, pretty much, they managed to equalise, to which the manager managed to get a red card for celebrating. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. <laughs> he came running onto the pitch doing a, a an airplane thing, yeah. and the referee put was sort of put him to the stand for being a fanny. And I say good because he has a fanny. Stupid dick. Uh, most of my week's been as the rest of my week will be able to try to get this green unit finished because the deadline's quickly approaching. Yeah. I've already started working on like clips. For like a trailer, being a mini trailer for the film as well. Yeah. My good new film. Which is things of just taking clips of like you and like Scott Milne's like Max Wilson character. I was just, brilliant. Just seeing wee snippets of you guys just putting them completely out of context just to make people think what the hell actually goes on in this film. Yeah. 
I can hear. Hoping he show people the trailer, and hopefully that'll make them want to see the film. Like, yeah. what, is, what mentalness is going on in this film? I can happily say I have appeared in a few of Scott's films by now, and I was fantastic in all of them. So good. I mean, I'm not one to brag, but... No, no, it's <laughs> not like you. <laughs> I was great. It was one of the times I wish there was a, a camera on here, because you'd see my, my facial expressions, to what <laughs> the bullshit that follows with you. That is not bullshit. Your film would be nothing without me. Nothing. It would be something. Yeah, but it wouldn't be a good something. <laughs> good God. Oh, well, the, the ego is strong in this one. Yeah, worry that I can kind of see the lights be here. But I worry that because I weren't here, I won't be able to see that the thing that if the thing stopped recording, I wouldn't be able to see it. So we'd just be sitting in this random room talking shit for. And... Practice. What age was your brother? Yeah, 25. Happy birthday to your brother. Jammy, jammy, 25-year-old shit. <laughs> I'll swap him. <laughs> he can be fucking 33. God, this sucks. Anyway. I, I love how I can take the joy of someone's 25th birthday and go... About you. Uh, you know, a lot of people say I, would have, I have an ego. Really? I, I, I don't want, think I, I do. I don't think I do. <laughs> really, people, if you could see Scott's face right now, it's a, it a picture and it is funny. <laughs> could not possibly roll my eyes any further. <laughs> Luckily, I managed to uh, not have to go to the church part of my cousin's communion. I got to go. What, did you believe if you walked into a building you would burn? No, I just, like, I cannot. It starts at 10, you get up at like, 8 in the morning or... Do you know, I I I I had my son's communion and all that jazz, but do you know the thing about church? It's not not that I have any ideological things against it. Mm -hmm. Much like yourself, it's so fucking dull. Can you imagine people looked around and seen you going in the church and thinking, is he the person he played when he walked into that church? <laughs> uh, I just I just look with disdain at all the old people. You know, like feel the need to sing so fully and loudly when they're singing fucking hymns. Yeah. Like, they're just hymns, people. You're not going to get into heaven any quicker by singing this shit. Mm -hmm. a, a good singer does not get through the gate. Mm -hmm. If said gate exists in the first fucking place. Oh, we don't want to have to go down that road in this, in this episode. It's a gate, not a road. <laughs> No, I'm talking about the road of whether or not the gate exists. You're the one doing it now. Oh, I'm pretty excited <laughs> because you really don't fucking get it. You're clearly winding me up. I am winding you up. <laughs> there are times when I regret asking him to do this fucking fool. I'm in too deep now. <laughs> Continue. Are you done? I'm done. <laughs> Compose yourself, Scott. Come on. I'm waiting for you to compose yourself. You're constantly fucking. I'm good. Uh, at least Ellen, she's kind of. And she'll. She won't be playing this. She's a bit of a poser. 
and then check to get my photo team. But on this particular day, there were a few too many photos. Right, uh, so I went to get this person, like, shout out dad's family for me, which she doesn't even know. She went, oh, get a photo with This is a dude that you barely know. Yeah. And, like, and, like there was a bunch of my cousins had other wings around, and they were all off playing somewhere else. And you can tell she just after a while just didn't want to be there. She wants to go away with the rest of the team. She doesn't want to be still undertaking any more pictures. Oh, right. Literally, she jumped in the air, fist, in the, fist up in the air, which she was told this is the last photo. She went, yes! <laughs> literally jumped for joy. But she didn't have to do any more good photos. I can and see that. Honest, I don't fucking blame her. We didn't really do much with my brother because he had to go do that live stream. Yeah. For the. Uh, did, did you get him a gift? Yeah, uh, well I already partly got the gift because I paid for tickets to go see uh, Chris Jericho live inside the ropes ah, on cool. the uh, 21st of May and I uh, also got my Patriot Disco t-shirt Ah, nifty <laughs> And uh, we got, we got him just a simple like party like chocolate cake from like Tesco Yeah we got, and then uh, the guy that eats the food like during the live stream, they got Mickey, they actually brought out during the live stream, sang happy birthday, it was like Lenny Caterpillar. <laughs> so now we've got two cakes in the house. Cool. Yeah, that's the unfortunate thing, you get your 25th birthday and then you don't really have a specific special birthday until you're 30th. Well, if you please, when you go to the wooden card shops, it's 21 and then you know nothing special until you're 30. Yeah. You're like 25. See, once you hit fucking 30, it goes up in 10s. Like, oh look, you've made it another decade. Don't you feel special? I don't think the president, but Jimmy Carr when he was in his thirties earlier. I'm at a point where I only way I can be straight as being young and now is if I die. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I could I could it's see sad, that. Sad but true. Sad but true, yeah. God. Oh that's a that's a sh fucking downer <laughs> man. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's okay. Uh, I don't care that much. The little one of my cousins, Wayne's, was being held by one of my bigger cousins, and he was holding her up, and she'd had a few too many sweeties, and then like, Ugh. Oh, already good shit. Bugger. It was a, we were laughing, but we also kind of felt bad. <laughs> yeah, like, ha ha ha, aww. Ha ha ha, oh, don't come near me. Yeah, don't, ew. <laughs> Stay over there. We feel your we feel pity, but don't touch uh, us. I mentioned eating some soup like I said a couple of times already, but there was a story I meant to tell last week, but I forgot. I didn't realize I hadn't told it till like on the bus already. But uh, one of the guys, uh, he and his girlfriend went to a McDonald's drive-through. Yeah. Uh, she ordered a plain cheeseburger, right? She got it home. They had uh, the bun, uh -huh. and the cheese. I had gherkins on, which I'm pretty sure it shouldn't have had if they asked for a plain burger. No burger. Where we Donald's? Because they've got a cheese roll. With no gherkins on it. We know, we know burger. Somebody forgot to put the burger on. How, how, the main thing you should. How, how? How can you forget to put the fucking burger in the. In, how? I don't know. That's like, that's like asking for a pie without any meat in it. Uh, or a pizza with no cheese on it. That wouldn't be so. Weird. I know there are people who have that, but it's, to me, it's yeah. Probably. To to I'm much like you. To me, it's not right. But yeah. So yeah. But yeah. And then you put in a group chat. They all have them. They were all taking the piss. Hashtag just as for hashtag Burger Gate. <laughs> you know how I remembered? Uh, I remembered that I hadn't told you. 
Because I remember I told you in the last podcast that when we were recording that I was heading back when I got home I was going to watch Backlash. Yeah. I was going to the bank and I went and got a couple of uh, burgers for me and my brother. Yeah. We went on the table. And I, did, and I made sure to check not only that they were playing, but they also had the actual burgers in them. Yeah. <laughs> it was only when I, did, when I checked in, I was like, oh shit, I should have told that story. Yeah. And uh, so my brother, like, don't, never fear, there'll be no burger gate today, I have made sure. <laughs> oh, just a little off topic reference or info I found out. Apparently, Lois uh, Lane has died. Margot Kidder. The original oh, Lois Lane. Oh. Yeah, apparently she's died now. Right. It's not as... It's, I mean, it's sad that she's yeah. dead, but it's not as sad as, say, like... John Mahoney. Yeah. And I know, I know that sounds incredibly crass, but... You see, you, it's the sort of one when you see it and you go, Oh, Margot Kidder's dead, that's shit. But when... You know, John Mahoney's like, and you're like, oh no, John Mahoney's dead. And now, and now we're we're once again on the Fraser fan club on with fan group on Facebook. We're talking about a fucking Fraser revival or reboot, and I feel that death's may occur by my hand if that happens. <laughs> leave hashtag leave Fraser the fuck alone. You no, know I don't entirely doubt that you're. That there would be some death by your hands, knowing you. That's so. That's so nice. What? I'm saying I believe you. Don't worry, you're safe. Hmm. <laughs> I was gonna say I thought that we thought about backlash last week because we we recorded our last episode the night after the day after backlash, but I hadn't seen it yet. It couldn't be our staying up. Uh, I backlash just seems like so long ago. Yeah, well, it, it was. Well, it was only a week, just over a week ago, but it feels much longer than that. Well, I I have to say, in my my opinion of backlash, I had more fun watching the old episodes of Heat. <laughs> oh yeah, like all through the old and on Heat, you see what it became in later years. I, I scrolled back to when the main event, the first episode was. Yeah. Owen Hart and the Rock, he came to mankind. Yeah. Like, how did it get to where it. I think it only goes up to. The episode itself only goes up to like 99. Yeah. And the last episode is the episode where Triple H gets interviewed before SummerSlam and events at Prairie calls him to the game. Yeah. Well, that was, it was two years it lasted, 98 to 99. Well, they still had like heat in some range, just not like that kind of. Yeah, yeah. It was like some great heat. Well, then they had all the other bloody shows like Velocity and shit. No, like I, I talked online like. Oh, we've got some heat. How long before we've got velocity again? Do you think we'll have that as classic, classic stuff on the network? I wouldn't really call it classic, but oh, you know what I mean, like yeah, probably yeah, a couple of years now. Because we, we I mean, last year they put they finally put Thunder on. Yeah, was that like WCW's sort of version yeah. of Heat? No, it was kind of a Thursday show, and then I think oh. it was, and then, apparently, unlike like because there was like somewhere between Rock Night Show and Raw. Apparently since Smackdown debuted, that fucking crushed Thunder from the offset. Well, yeah. Smack- and like I keep saying to you, Smackdown wasn't even supposed to be a show, it was supposed to be a one-off. I think mean, like, Ridge Russo was going to be the head writer, but it was going to be an all-women's show, but I think an all-women's show led by, led by Vince Russo. Yeah, would be nothing but silliness and tits. I know we've gone off the way, but speaking of Vince Russo, there was a kind of thing where he was complaining. Is this be- a recent thing? Uh, he was uh, being kept off the Bullet Club All In show 
I think they were trying to keep him away in the photo to treat him. We don't reward bad behaviour, stay away from our show. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the tickets we all won went on sale the other day and apparently sell out in less than 30 minutes. Good God. Or 29 minutes, 36 seconds, according to Cody Rhodes, exactly. And uh, maybe in Chicago, I think some people are suggesting that maybe the fact that their Starcast uh, compared to the day before and they announced a meet and greet with CM Punk might have had something to do with it because people they haven't said that he's going to be on the show but they said he's going to do a fan thing yeah people are maybe hoping that as they go and they see him there that he will appear on All In the next night I, th- I think we should just leave the CM Punk thing alone the guy the guy burnt his bridges long ago I think I think people will complain if he doesn't do it but as I say if he doesn't want to Anything that's his decision, really. Yeah. Plus, he's got a UFC event in June, so depending on how that goes, I don't yeah, know if he'll, he'll want to. He's got another UFC match to make himself look stupid in. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, he didn't exactly give a great account of himself the first time. Um, they're actually only around one match for all in. It's uh, Nick Aldis, uh, formerly Magnus Materian, the current NWA champion. Yeah. He's going to defend the title against Cody. Oh. It's funny because obviously Cody's dad, Dusty, was a former NWA champion. Yeah. So, and the announced Rey Mysterio will be there. God, he's everywhere now, isn't he? Yeah. I mean, when he was made wrestle at the New Japan show, but he got injured uh, when in uh, Long Beach. Yeah. He had an angle there with Marty Skirrell. So I'm thinking Marty Skirrell's on All In, so maybe they'll do that match there. And uh, also, Gaza and Omega are going to have a match for the IWGP title coming up. And they're both on the all in show, so I'm thinking there's maybe a possibility of Omega winning the title yeah. in Japan and then uh, challenging Okada if you want the rematch, meet me at all in. Because that would be a. Yeah. Like I, say, I would say as a ticket sale, like they've already sold the tickets just on releasing really the names. Yeah. No, I was. I, I hear what you're saying, but I was just thinking there, you know, like we've got. Heat on the network now, and we were talking. I wonder how long it'll be before Velocity's on and all that crap. Yeah. I tell you what, I'd love to see on the network. Hmm. Um, I believe it was Superstars before Raw. Uh, I think so. And they don't really have much lat on the network. I don't believe so. I would like to see lat on the network. Mm-hmm. To see, like, you know, the funeral parlor, the Undertaker, the barber shop. Yeah. Many, many, many instances that happened in the early days that have a have a real telling in nineties wrestling, you know. Also, there's a lot of the old like territory television shows that are on the network, like yeah. all these uh, territories at mid south. Also, we put all that, and then they put episodes of South Park, which is very funny on the network. We say it's got all these these old time wrestling shows. Also, here's that show we made. It t- essentially takes the piss out of them. <laughs> Yeah. But uh, there's a guy in the ring called Flip Gordon. Yeah. Who's been trying to get on all in, but they keep saying no. And uh, they did an angle at the press conference where he came in pretending to be a member of the press with a fake mustache, where you can quickly tell it's him. Mm. You take the mustache off, and they're like, my God, it's Flip Gordon. <laughs> As if you couldn't tell. <laughs> well, he's finally getting another shot to get on all in coming up soon. But a while ago, they put up a poll who do you want to see it all in? It was the options were Flip or Cody's dog. And Cody's dog won. <laughs> Which is not a good... No, not, not a good, good thing at all. You see how quickly we've went away from backlash? No, yeah, that's just how good backlash was. Well, the opening match, uh, Miz versus... Uh, Rollins. Rollins was good. 
yeah. really good way, but like Miz, uh, like they caught me thinking Miz would win a couple few more times than I thought they would, yeah. given that they're on different brands. But uh, yeah, Rollins went, and then I don't think it took as much of a veer off the cliff as, as Battleground did after the Usos match. No, what what was your views on uh, Charlotte uh, Carmella match? I don't. I didn't mind it anyway. Everyone's more like, oh, she beat Charlotte. Aye, but bullshit. Like she beat it, a queen. It wasn't she, bullshit, though. People say, oh, she beat a queen. Like, no, she hit her knee. She took advantage. Yeah. May not look the best role, but she's a heel to you. She took advantage of an open. It was a good heel win because, like you say, Charlotte tried that whatever the fuck she tried off the turnbuckle and yeah. tweaked her knee and what did Carmella do? She booted her in the leg, rolled her up. Big wins and that's a big win. I think I think a general an image change would help a lot because she looks like a ditzy fool at the minute. She reminds me too much of like, Divas champions of back when, you know. I think she's much better both on mic and in the ring than some of them. Ah uh, no, but you know what yeah, I mean, yeah, though. I get what you mean. You get what I mean. Yeah. You know she like see if she just changed up her image a wee touch. <laughs> made herself look, look less because she basically comes out and wrestles in a swimsuit yeah you know I get what you mean uh, a lot of people were down in the Cass Ryan match yeah this was the kind of thing kind of damned if you do damned if you don't think is if Cass gets these wins wins kind of he gets to win on his first match back as he, he's done he pushes this new big heel yeah but then again people are going to be annoyed at Brian's first singles he lost his first singles pay-per-view match but and Brian won, and people were kind of underwhelmed by the match and didn't like the castle laws. Like, kind of like you said, damned if you do, damned if you don't. Yeah, and plus it leaves it open because, like, Cass, in my opinion, is a slow burner, you know what I mean? He's going to need a couple of more matches to really put him in that place. Mm -hmm. And what better than having what could look, what looks like becoming a programme with Daniel Bryan, mm -hmm. you know? If there's nobody better in that backstage that could really... Work a good program with Cass, mm -hmm. and the two of them are coming back for injury. I mean, yeah. Daniel Bryan a wee bit less time, well, a wee bit longer time away than Cass, but you know, both of them coming back for injury, both of them looking to really get themselves back up there. Mm -hmm. A good, say, I don't know, couple of month long program between them, couple of pay per view meetings, could really help both of them. You know. Yeah. Uh, I think it's because people are so desperate just to see the Brian Miz match. Yeah. Reason, and I think the reason they're seeing Brian in this program for a while is, like, again, they're still testing him for his concussions just to make, before putting an edge into... Too extreme. Too, just, like, putting him anywhere near the title picture. Yeah. You, you've been hit on that point in the last time. Yeah, I'm just saying. Because yeah. I feel like it needs reiterated because people are, you know, like, all these dream points they had, they, they wanted to insinuate, and then these first appointed Yeah, you can you can't just push the guy back into the yeah. the fray, you know. Mm -hmm. I think people are just a bit too quick, quick to judge uh, things, especially when it comes to someone they like, like Brian. Yeah. And there was a kind of another thing that kind of stand if you do think is Brian lost a money in the bank qualifying match to Rusev. Mm, well, on day. On SmackDown. Yeah. Because he was, well, and they they said it was because he was still missing some injuries from the post matches that free. free uh, Cass, yeah. So they say they've been, and then people are saying, no, oh, Brian's going to another guy in the roster. Like, so, like, again, another damage you do, because Rusev's another guy who's insanely over that people are more in there isn't getting pushed. Yeah. And then Rusev won, 
Oh, this is for Daniel Bryan. If Daniel Bryan won, oh, they're still pushing down Rusev as the sparring heel. Yeah, no, no one wins. I, I must say, well... <laughs> I don't think I'm, t- I'm, I'm really moaning people not to have opinions about people like... Yeah. Well, no, you're, mo- you're moaning about people... Like, people being fickle. You know? I feel the same as when I was trying to defend the Roman thing, and that came back and bit me on the arse. Kinda. Yeah, kind of. Bit. But then... But that wasn't your doing. Yeah. I'm trying to have, I have more faith in that I'll be right about this Daniel Bryan thing. If not, I'll come back on in a couple of months and I'll apologise again. For God's sake, Roman made me look like a right twat, didn't he? <laughs> lost at the Rumble, lost at uh, WrestleMania, comes out every week in Mount Morning like a fucking... Yeah. Well, I've got to say, the more I watch uh, Rusev, mm-hmm. particularly his entrance, mm-hmm. I love that man, so yeah. I do. That, uh, what's his What's his little buddy's name again? In English. Hey, that guy is brilliant, man. <laughs> it's Rusev Day. <laughs> You're like, yes, yeah, it's Rusev Day, man. <laughs> yeah. You can see why everybody was so behind him at WrestleMania, man. Yeah, uh, I, I loved that whole segment we did a while back when Elias kept trying to play in the... Yeah, <laughs> and then, what was it, the, the New Day? Uh, oh, no Way Jose. No Way Jose, and then Rusev Day. <laughs> and I, I did love the slight wee bit when uh, Aiden English was going to get on the No Way Jose thing, uh, and then Rusev was like, no, nah, man, fucking back. <laughs> <laughs> I was match, I think, should have made, I think... I heard it was him, I think the finish is why it didn't. Because he probably still would have been better than the main that we got. But, uh, EJ Nakamura, I think. Yeah. But I, I liked the main match, I didn't say I hated it. Yeah. But it wasn't the dream match they were hasting. It, it was okay at Rumble, but I think this was where it was really starting to Pick build, up. build and it was building. Like they had the chair spot mm. where he could bounce back and he cut you yeah, that cut on the side. Yeah, the yeah, that was pretty bitching. Like they had the low blows, like they were actually building their. This actually felt like something, and then they did the double low blow spot. Yeah. And they're going to have another match at the night, and I've heard rumours that because of this finish, this is meant to lead to a last man standing match. Do you believe that in the, in the next pay per view match that Nakamura will finally get that belt on him? You honestly, I hope you, so. you hope. I hope so. Yeah. But how how strongly do you believe it will happen? I'm not, I'm not sure because like. Wait, like, I, I wouldn't. Was, I wouldn't I was, say I was, put so, some money on it, I was, but I've been so sure the last few things. Yeah, but they completely keep swerving it. Yeah. You yeah, know. This wouldn't be bad. He doesn't. He doesn't keep winning. Like in these weird finishes, it wasn't, it wasn't the fact that he's already also had two WWE title shots against Jinder and lost them too. So the more he loses when he tries to go for the title, the the less likely it is he's going to win it. The less that they're... Yeah. The more they're lowering people's... Like, basically, you're saying that less... They're less really hindering when he actually does win. Yeah, less... Basically, what you're... I'm assuming you're saying I'm is... I'm struggling to figure out what the hell I'm saying. It's basically, it's either less time... Or no. Or no time. Yeah. You know? And just my I was watching on Raw, I think they were kind of hyping, I think. By the language, it looked like they were hyping a match between them on SmackDown. Yeah. Like, but as after all these times, if Nakamura wins the hit on SmackDown, it's good, it'll be good to see him finally with the belt. But would it be as special on SmackDown? Like, if they're going to do it on SmackDown, why not just do it on? Well, how often? How often nowadays do you see a title change on a show, well, as opposed to a pay-per-view show? Well, it wouldn't be any fitting if he did win because they're in London. 
and last time they were in the UK, first Smackdown was when AJ won the title and Jinder, so. Yeah. So. And then, uh, I really, actually, I really don't get a comment on that match. Uh, although the, the pre show match actually with Bailey B. Ruby was actually a lot better than people would probably expect it to be, because that was it. And Ruby had a good, really good match on the Raw before that with Sasha. Yeah. She won that, and then she was, it was her, Sasha, and Ember, and a triple threat Money in the Bank qualifier. Yeah. Because they're doing the women's and the men's one, like four feet, and both matches four feet Raw, four feet SmackDown. Yeah. Uh, is this an elimination type match, or just no, four on four? No, no, the four on four is in like four, well, it's like four people in the men's Money in the Bank. Yeah, yeah, oh, right, 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 right. So, like, they're doing trouble that people have to really earn their spot. Yeah. But, so, the trouble threat ones match they had on last week's call was a really good, which is good because Ruby arrived and Wright's call were kind of shit on, <laughs> on SmackDown. They weren't really, I think because they were putting a program with Charlotte and it couldn't really go that anywhere because Charlotte had to do the thing we asked her. Yeah. So, they couldn't have Ruby beat her because Charlotte had to remain strong. But now since they've moved to Raw and they don't have to worry about that, Ruby's been getting some good matches, having some good matches, getting some big wins. Yeah. It finally feels like something in the right squad being interfering and actually feel like... Feel like a proper... Group. Group, yeah. Do you, you, you've been watching Raw, right? Yeah. What has been happening in regards to the deleters of worlds? They've been getting... They've just been... They've been wins. Uh, have we been seeming dominant? Yeah, well, they've got a new figure, basically a, a version, double version of Sister Abigail, where they both... Oh, yeah, I've seen that, I've seen that one, yeah. Uh, That's sweet. They've also, they did a thing where, because Matt Hardy's whole body just slowly existed through, for many years, but it's just in different bodies. It just did a thing where he was reading a book, about the story of his soul and Matt Bray, Bray's soul. Yeah. It shows them, them at different historical events, just them superimposed, didn't he? <laughs> It's Trippy. silly, but it's also quite funny. Yeah, it's it's, it's intriguing. Mm-hmm. Oh, speaking of Raw last night in London, uh, our good friend Craig went along with Sam. I seen it on Facebook. Aye. Yeah. Sam, uh, I don't put when I had on, but I'm still hoping to get her on the show. Is a big wrestling fan, but Craig is not at all. And so I seen the point that they were going to Sam because they didn't come to fucking. Scotland were you on, Were you jealous? They didn't come to Scotland on this tour, so yeah. Where you're like, she's taking him, and he's not a wrestling fan. No, I'm just saying, like, like the fact that they got to go at all, and the fact that they didn't come to Scotland on this too. Ah. Uh, also, like, I'm very confused why, you would t- why Craig went if he's not a fan. In fairness, I mean, I, I get I get your pettiness with the, well, he got to go and he's not a fan, blah. No, I'm not worried that he got to go. In fact, that I'm wondering why you would go. Wonder, oh, why, why you would go? Yeah. Well, he probably went because Sam's a friend and yeah. it was a night out. He he probably looked at it as a night out, but also I get the same thing, or I've had the same thing in the past with bands, yeah. and they're touring everywhere, even in fucking Edinburgh, and they don't come to Glasgow, and you're like, why? Why are you going this close? <laughs> But not here. Yeah. Fuck you. I don't have the money to go all the way to fucking Edinburgh to see you. Yeah. Cunt. <laughs> so, I was just, uh, we were kind of back and forth with them on Facebook. Like, I imagine how confused Craig must be, especially when Bray and Matt came out. Mm-hmm. It confused, like, if you've never watched them, and then these guys come out doing the whole the delete, and then yeah. Matt Bray has his lantern. And... Uh, oh, speaking of teams, you've seen what Perfect and uh, Bo Dallas have, have done now. 
I haven't. They're uh, again that they're filming themselves. They, they're they're no longer like supporting actors. Yeah. Uh, Lady Men's last week on another fifth group. We're no longer the Mistourage. We're the A Team. <laughs> guys, you can't use that. It's the name of a TV show. What is it? Okay, we're the B team. That's what we're saying. And uh, Scarlett's looking like, that's a terrible name. But no, the B stands for best. <laughs> so they're, so they're, they said, like, Scarlett pointed they've never won a match as a t- when it's just they two in a tag team. When they've been like six men, they've won a couple, but they've never won a match together. Yeah. And Scarlett uh, and Boda said, no, that was as the Miztourage. The B team are undefeated. <laughs> so they went in a match with B Jungle as the B team, which essentially just took shirts with just in like black pens, letter B yeah. written on them. And people were actually in the crowd were singing the A team theme song during the match because they, and then they won and they won the match against B Jungle and this look on their face like we actually won. <laughs> and then uh, and uh, Corey says, but you know, like they're dead, they're undefeated. And Corey's like they've won one match. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did I did a tweet on I sent a tweet on they did it they're one in bow a new streak begins <laughs> I just imagine like when if CBL was here it's they did it one in bow <laughs> uh, I did not think we'd be talking about this for this long that's okay that's so, how so much I think uh, the thing we've been talking we've we talked very little about actually about backlash that's a good thing though because yeah. ba- there wasn't a lot to talk about backlash yeah no, it was like you said. It went. It went from the IC title match, and mm. then slowly but surely started getting less and less. Not that the matches themselves weren't. <laughs> all of them were bad. They were good matches. It's just the show was poor. And uh, if you like wrestled, you'll have loved the Backlash main event. <laughs> My God. <laughs> I like Smojo. Yeah. Roman's alright. But my god, this was boring. Yeah. Long as what was when uh, uh, Rain went, Rain went for the drive-by and Joe caught him in the choke. Yeah. That was good. People left during this match. Yeah. Just you could see people leave. Good god, I don't want to talk about let's it. Let's not. Let's okay. not. Let's talk about. Let's talk about what the leaders of Worlds are doing. Yeah. Aren't we good? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I do want to talk about. Uh, we're late. All these events have been so close to each other now. It's kind of got like four or five weeks till the next actual pay per view. We've got, and then we'll have Takeover Chicago, uh, Money in the Bank, then the two night Rods match, and then the two nights of the UK Championship Tournament that they're doing in the Albert Hall. But apparently, they've actually announced that the first round will actually take place at download because uh, NXT do downloads. Yeah. Uh, so the first round will be there, and I think that either they'll do semis. Uh, quarter semis and finals one night and the next year they win or will get a title shot yeah. or they'll do quarters and semis one night and then the following night will be Sorry about the sudden shift there and yet again we're having buddy technical difficulties in the studio Yeah, fun college Get the equipment Yeah, that's saying yeah, so UK title tournament's coming up soon, I'm really excited to do that I think this week we may actually be hearing who's in the tournament which will be good <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to win it. Yay. I know. <laughs> Was it the me? Just everything, really. Are you, are you starting to lose your, your mind a little? Only something. Uh, Don't worry, I'll get you there fully. I started losing it long long ago. Long after... When you, not, met, when you met me? Not, not, not long after I met you. 
I am a good influence on people. Yeah, sure you are. <laughs> as well as uh, the Kucherko show on the 21st of May, as you mentioned, I'm actually also going to ICW's Ready Player One the night before, mm-hmm. which should be good. Yeah, that'd be good. I don't, really, I, just, I don't have any more, any more to say, but I just want to throw that out there that I'm, I'm doing that. I thought I had more, but I don't. You know, it's a baller when you wish you had more, think yeah. you have more, but like, I have nothing. Okay, when you thought, I'll do the stories at the start about what I've been up to and the burger gate, and then we'll talk about a bit of backlash and what's going on. I realised how little there was to say about backlash. So we had to, we talked about just about anything else just to not talk about backlash. Yeah, that is the whole point of this day's podcast, to not talk about backlash. <laughs> that, that should be the title. Let's... Yeah. Let's not talk about backlash. Let's not talk about backlash slash Finn Martin review. Backlash against backlash. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, if you have anything more to say, well, before, uh, we, throw, before we throw over to our hour-long interview, I was going to just put a bit of this interview in. Whoa. I was just going to put a bit in, in and then put on Anchor the full hour on Anchor as its own separate thing, but I thought, nah, I'll just stick the full hour on this. Stick it on our show. Because if you want a... We start listening to it, you'll want to keep going because he, he gives them, my man gives them really good insight. Yeah. Well, I would say just let it go. Go on forward with the interview. Let the people hear it. I have nothing more to add to it. Uh, 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 hopefully, we enjoy the interview. We'll do some more interviews. I've actually already put some, some feelers out for more interviews. I won't say who in case I don't get them, but I'll talk to you all about it when, we, when we're all fair. And I will just add my my little faux pas in the name of that band earlier. It was Cobra in the Lotus. Uh-huh. Cobra in the Lotus. And their album Prevail 2, which I strongly, strongly recommend to our listeners. No, we'll just we'll just put that as the end song because I, I can't be bothered thinking of anything there. Oh, I'll, I'll get I'll get the next couple of weeks. Okay, well the end song is My Immortal by Cobra in the Lotus. Oh. You people will fucking love it. I'll be a word shift to Finn Martin to suddenly into that song. I'm sure. It'll it will be an emotional roller coaster, it truly will. Yeah. So yeah. Hopefully we get to do more interviews. I want to thank Finn for doing this interview and we're always looking we're always looking for new things to do for the show. We've already we're already chatting to itself off air about new things to do we, more in the We have some fantastic stuff in the pipeline. Yes. More on that as it develops. Yes. But uh, if you like this show and if you like the interview, mean to follow us on Twitter at SP Rambling for me at Scott McLean nine eighty six. Like the Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash rambling podcast. Yep. Get us on Anchor, on Pocket Cast, Apple Podcasts, all sorts of platforms. We're everywhere. But the main platform is Anchor, and I'll take you to all the others. Yeah, we are everywhere and anywhere. Yes. We are taking over. Hopefully, we'll be on Spotify soon. <laughs> We're taking over the fucking world. Yep. All right. Well, take you over to my interview with Finn Martin. And uh, we're back here on Scott and Paul's Rambling Podcast, and I'm delighted to be joined by our, our very first interview. It's and who's been very well respected in the world of wrestling journalism for the past 20 years, and is now a member of the Inside the Ropes team. It's Inside the Ropes, Finn Martin. Hello, Finn. Hello, how are you doing, Scott? I'm doing very well, as I said there. You're actually our uh, first interview, so I'm glad. I'm honoured. Yeah. Honoured to be chosen. Yeah. Uh, there'll be many, hopefully many in the future, but there's only ever one first. Exactly! <laughs> <laughs> so, so I hope you're not going to ask me about Backlash, because I haven't watched it yet. 
Uh, I was probably wasn't tuned to. Alright, <laughs> <laughs> okay, well that's just as well, yeah, because we're recording this on the Tuesday, yeah. and uh, so I had the day off yesterday, <laughs> and uh, took advantage of the glorious weather, uh, so I'm planning on watching Backlash today. I believe the, the reviews aren't too favourable, lots of people aren't too chuffed with the with the uh, with the bucket of the show from what I hear but I will be watching it myself later today and I will make my own judgment then yeah well, I, ho- I won't uh, hopefully spoil anything for you so I'll quickly move on <laughs> okay alright we'll uh, jump into our first question it's about a loaded question really uh, Matt has talked to you about some of your favourite aspects of when you were running Power Slam or how many years that it was running yeah, it was, well, it was something I always wanted to do. I mean, it was always something that I imagined might happen. Um, and then when it did, it was like, wow, you know, so becoming, running your own wrestling magazine back in 1992 when I was 22 at the time, it was, um, it was like a dream come true. Um, I mean, as it would be for, for anyone uh, at that point who was a, a wrestling fan. Um so that that in itself was huge, and but just as it as it continued, I mean, as I've mentioned in previous interviews, and I wrote my first book, Pro Wrestling Through the Palestine Years. I only expected it to last about six issues, and the fact it continued, Superstars Wrestling lasted thirty issues, was pretty amazing. And then we relaunched it as Palestine, and that lasted, as you know, two hundred and thirty-seven issues. So the fact that I was able to do the job for as long as I did in itself is, you look back and think. That was amazing, you know. That was huge. Uh, as far as when you were actually working on it, um, the uplifting aspects of it were were just, I think, improving as a writer and improving as a, a magazine producer. Because for me, it was all on the job training. Um, and really, when you put out a quality issue, um, there weren't too many quality issues at first. Um, but I always felt that. You know, the goal with each issue was to make it better than the last. I mean, that didn't always happen, but that was the goal. And when that did happen, when you did achieve that, there was a t- tremendous sense of satisfaction there. So when you put out a really good issue, that was a really, a really tremendous thing. You know, it just filled you with self-confidence. Uh, when you got that killer interview, that was another big thing as well. I mean, I always remember um, getting the interview with uh, Hulk Hogan for issue two. I mean, that just felt like was like the biggest moment ever. Uh, I mean, if you wind it, wind it back further than that, when I did the interview with Roddy Piper for, I think it was issue 10 of Superstars Wrestling, I went down and met him in uh, in London, and that felt felt really big as well. So getting those getting those huge interviews with these people that you'd watched as a fan, that was that was always that was always huge. That was always like you know you felt like you'd really achieved something there. So. Um, you know, when the when the you know the magazine continued and finally, you know, I think after a while, it, one of the great things about it was you felt like you were doing something that mattered. Um, I don't know how far into it I was before I really before the magazine really did feel sort of like it was making a difference to people or making a difference uh, on some level um, to the readers, and that was that was very uh, that was very fulfilling as well. Um, as it became successful uh, in the late 90s and certainly into the 2000s, financially successful, I mean, it was nice to uh, to pass that on to the writers and the photographers. Um, I really felt like Palestine paid the people well, uh, so that was a nice thing to do. Um, 
another thing that was really good about it was was the whole um, deadline buzz and the whole that's something that if you've worked in in the industry and I think anyone who's sort of done any type of um, university uh, dissertation or any large written project there's a real buzz when you come up to your deadline um, and then when you actually make that deadline and you know that you've put in a good a good shift or a good uh, you've really put some good work in and then the results are good you get a good mark or with PowerSlam you get good sales that was always very heartening and very you know, yeah that's a great sense of job satisfaction so there was a lot of aspects of it that, that were very fulfilling um, so so yeah that's probably I mean there's I did the job for so long and there were so many things about it you know meeting the people you know making friends along the way and really building a good team at PowerSlam which took um, Rob Butch obviously worked for the magazine throughout the 90s then he left in 2000 and he had to like build another team after that that took a while to really get the people together but that was really satisfying as well getting a, a team of people that you could rely on and you became friends with I'm still in touch with many of the people that worked on Power Slam to this day, and hopefully there'll be friendships that will, that will last, you know, will last uh, uh, until I shuffle off, shuffle off this mortal coil. So, just lots of things about it, you know, lots of things about doing the job for that long and, and doing a job that, that I think, you know, that, well, the fact that we're talking about it now, Scott, yeah. is, is really confirmation that, that the magazine did matter in the end uh, and, and that, that was it you know we all like to think in life that we're doing something that matters don't we yeah absolutely uh, and, uh, on the same uh, line as that uh, you talk to us about some of your least favorite assets because I can no run working for 20 years it can't have all been perfect oh no it wasn't all plain sailing there was there was certainly uh, there was a lot of downsides to it as well. The big one was, was the fact that you were always working and just never having time for people. And, and this is a question I've never really been asked before, uh, probably because people think, well, you had the dream job. Uh, how, how, you know, you can't complain. You, you're not allowed to complain. You know, we'd, we'd give anything to trade places with you. Uh, and I do get that. And then certainly looking back, it was, a, it was a tremendous privilege to do the magazine for as long as I did. Uh, and you know, and there were good financial years along the way. So obviously, making a, a living out of it as well was was even better. Um, so a lot of people will probably think, well, what are you doing? You can't complain. You know, we would love to be in your position. How dare you complain about having the dream job? And I do definitely get that. But when you've been doing a job, whatever the job is, for 20 plus years, there are obviously going to be aspects of it that are going to be quite challenging. And I think the worst one was, yeah, always working and just never having time for people. Uh, and, you know, you'd see the disappointment in their eyes or sense it in their voices, you know, when you couldn't attend a particular gathering or event because you were always working. Uh, or, you know, some people would ring you up and you're like, you've got to get that article finished by before the post goes back in the day when we used to actually post things. Uh, and you'd have to cut conversation short because, you know, you had to get this thing finished. You had to get down to the post office and send it. Um, you know, obviously I put some serious hours in on the magazine. Um, and because it and because it was pro wrestling, uh, which a lot of people view as this frivolous form of entertainment, many people didn't understand why you would spend so long getting things right. Because you know that was 
the way you you know the way people are, Scott. A lot of people who aren't fans don't I mean, get yeah. it. Yeah, of course. So, when so many people like that. Yeah, well, of course, everyone has. So, um, so they think, well, why is this person working till ten or eleven or twelve o'clock at night on we- and like three weekends out of four to get this thing finished? It's just a wrestling magazine. So people didn't get it either. They didn't really understand why you were trying to get it right and trying to make the magazine better each month and pursuing that interview or rewriting that article again and again and again until it was right or you know you've got that problem with your photos not arriving so then you've got to change something or somebody gets an article in late so then things have got to be jigged around and oh you know it was there was a lot of things about it that were very challenging um, but but definitely the one was 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 the hours and just the number of hours you were there um, and as you got, you know, I was 40, I was 44 when I closed Power Slam in July of 2014. So when you got to that age, it was, it was nice to have time for people again. You know, when I'm not on that constant treadmill, that constant magazine treadmill, it was nice to have more time for people. Uh, so that was one of the real benefits of closing the magazine. Um, uh, but in saying that, you know, the, the three books were pretty full on. You know, I was putting some serious hours in on those books. Um, and, you know, when you get in that deadline zone, when you're coming up to it and anyone who's done any sort of, as I've said before, any sort of large written project will know exactly what I mean. I'm sure many other jobs are the same. All you can really think about is getting the job finished. Um, and and um, people say, well, you've got to come out for a meal. You've got to eat. It's like, well, you know, if I'm if I'm detaching myself from uh, the zone I mean where I'm thinking about what I'm writing to go out and talk about other things it's then going to take me an hour to get back into it when I get back and you know it's just going to prolong the, the whole process so no I can't come and do that uh, so sh- I can't be sociable tonight I've got to finish this job so you know it was it was certainly like that as well on the books um, because you know you want to get them right you want them to be as good as they can be um, and certainly feel that was the case with the books with the magazines because you were always on this four week or five week deadline um, there were some issues that were better than others and um, you look back and think wow if I'd had like another few days on that article or another few days on this or another few hours on this um, perhaps it would have been better but that's the nature of the beast you've got to get the product out there and then get on with the next one so uh, so yeah the, the, the worst parts about it were, were really just the, the constant treadmill and just rarely really having any time off uh, but that that's the magazine business that's the job and, and you and it was my choice to do it yeah absolutely uh now like you said you were covering wrestling for over 20 years uh, i imagine there were some di- points where it was slightly more difficult to be covering wrestling like maybe the product wasn't as hot as it had been in other time periods or stuff like that yeah, but, well, the, I mean, the ones that really leap to mind were when you're covering legal things, uh, like the McMahon trial, uh, when he was indicted in 93, and various other legal-related things, certainly in those early days when, as I said earlier, it was uh, it was on-the-job training for me, so there was a lot of things that I just sort of learnt as I went along. So the McMahon trial was really quite a complicated thing to cover, um, and at the time, they never didn't understand what it was all about they didn't really get that it was all about whether there'd been a conspiracy or not and in court it was proven that there wasn't a conspiracy so of course Vince was acquitted 
So, I mean, doing things like that, the whole legal things, that was at first definitely the most difficult thing for me to cover. Um, obviously, the Benoit tragedy of 2007 was a really difficult one to cover. Uh, I shouldn't need to explain why. Yeah. Um, and the ensuing fallout of that with the, all the signature pharmacy scandal and WWE getting its defensive posture up. And that was a really bad time to be covering wrestling. At times like that, you have to step up and you've got to do it. And you've got to do it to the best of your abilities. And, and I hope that I did do that at the time. So there's obviously been a lot of low moments like that. I mean, as far as creative moments where wrestling has creatively um, been substandard, um, they're far easier to cover than a tragedy or a trial. Or, you know, if you think back, Scott, how things were in the, in the 2000s, I mean, you know, with the drug problems that wrestling had and the amount of wrestlers that were dying, I mean, it was just, it was just ridiculous, wasn't it, about then? You know, just the amount of drug-related deaths that there were of people in the 20s, 30s, and early 40s, I mean, that there was very difficult to cover. And just it kind of seemed at the time that nothing was ever going to change. And happily, things have changed, and it does seem like wrestling is as clean as it's, as it's been since I've been covering it anyway, which I think is a really good thing. So that's always been difficult. As far as the creative aspects, when things haven't been as good as they were, obviously the, the demise of WCW and ECW in 2001 uh, was, was, was painful to cover. Uh, seeing those, uh, I mean, obviously WCW, both, well, ECW never made money, but it creatively was, was, a, was a powerhouse, creatively at least. And WCW financially, uh, had been very successful and creatively been been the number one company in the world for, for much of 96 and uh, I would say a good portion of 97 as well. So it was very sad to see those companies fall. Um, and just also there's been a, like a lot of companies that have gone, come and gone along over the years and, you, and it's kind of predictable when they haven't made it. Uh, and you look at it and you think, well, what are these people thinking? How can they possibly imagine that this business model they've got can succeed? So that's always been quite sad as well to see things like that happen, as we saw earlier this year with Five Star Wrestling. I remember Kenny and I on Inside the Ropes, on the Power Sound podcast on Inside the Ropes, uh, when Five Star Wrestling was going, was just saying that there's no way this is sustainable. It was just impossible for that to be sustained over the long haul. and. We thought it would last a little bit longer than it did, and of course it closed, and it, it was not a surprise by any means. It was inevitable that it wasn't going to make it. So that's always been very sad to see, you know, really just seeing that people in wrestling not not learning from the mistakes of others and not thinking things through and just jumping in head first with, without really... Um, assessing what it is they were doing, what the chances of success were, that's always been really sad to see. I mean, I'm sure you'll agree, Scott, there's nothing worse than seeing people throwing good money over bad. Uh, people throwing good money after bad. You know, it's just it's just such a waste, isn't it? Yeah, it's worse than some people were probably saying similar things about TNA for much of the late 2010s, but they're still going, even though technically they're not called TNA anymore. Well, that's right, yeah. I mean, it was, um, I mean, I always remember in 2009, Dixie Cat, it was a very famous interview that Dixie Cat went well, on an interview. She, she opened an episode of Impact, I, can't, I think it was around about October or November of 2009, 
and it was just after she closed the deal with Hogan and Bischoff, and she had all the she had all the roster up sat there in the seats, and she came out there and explained to them what was going to happen, and you either had to support her or there was the door. So she was basically saying, "I'm right, I know everything." And you need to support my decisions, otherwise there's no place for you in this company. And you looked at it and you just thought, what, what, why are you saying this? Why are you behaving like this? And how the hell can Hogan and Bischoff really turn this company around? And that was really sad to see. And from, I don't know, halfway through the January 4th, 2010 episode, you could just see that it wasn't going to work. And then they decided to take Raw on by moving impact over to Monday nights, head-to-head with Raw, thinking that they can start another Monday night war like it was back in 95, 96, 97, 98. And it was just like, you've got no chance. There's no way you can compete with WWE, so why are you doing this? That was really sad to see. Uh, And in many ways, uh, impact is is still paying the price for that decision now. I mean, Dixie ended up having to sell up uh, the lion's share of the uh, stock in the company and she's not really involved anymore um but you look at impact and you just think had you not done this had you not entered into this agreement with hogan and bischoff at great expense and and given them the keys to the kingdom so they could turn this company into something that you know a, a, a 2010s version of, of what they were doing in the late 90s um, you think well, where that, where might that company be right now? So that was really sad to see. So lots of things like that. Um, you, you don't you don't want to see you you know I'm, I'm all about wrestling being as good as it can be and being as profitable as it can be, so people can make money out of it and people can be treated well. And when you see a company that's either doing well or could do well, make the wrong moves and basically plummet into the abyss i mean that that does fill me with sadness and i'm sure most people listening to this would agree yeah and certainly uh, impact still kind of carries a stigma from that time period to this day definitely just i mean i, th- I think the, the company has uh, certainly over the last few weeks has made some progress um but i mean the thing is it's there, there isn't that much money to spend on it because there's very little money coming in and it just feels like they're never going to have the money to be able to uh, reach the point that they possibly could have got to in 2010 if they'd made the right moves back then. Uh, it just feels like the whole thing's sort of existing rather than uh, you know growing. It's not a company that you can really see going anywhere. When you look at Impact, it's usually an enjoyable TV program now. Um, and the last paper reviews um but it's hard to imagine that the company's really going to get any larger than it is today um i think most people i think most people would come to the same conclusion yeah and it's unfortunate that uh, you mentioned in your books about powerslam being uh, when it started being very much in the realms of kayfabe but that had kind of changed by the late 90s was that kind of a case of like changing with the business like was becoming more of a realistic product. Um, I think so. It was really just just tracking the mood as well of, of wrestling fans, and some people had the internet by the sort of late nineties. I think I got it in about ninety seven. I think it was. 
Um, by the end of the decade, a lot more people had it, and that was definitely the mood. It was changing towards um, right about wrestling this way because people know, they've known all along, it's time for you to adjust the way that you write about it. So, yeah, it was 99 when we went for the full-fledged change. Um, but, I mean, even in the superstars, I, I guess probably the late superstars of wrestling, certainly the early Power Slam days, if you knew what was going on, I hope that Power Slam and certainly the late latter days of Superstars Wrestling did not insult your intelligence. Maybe it did do a few times. If it did, I apologize for that. Uh, but it's, uh, it was just really the mood of the time and the changes in the business. And, and it just seemed like the way to go. It just seemed like a natural progression. Um, and, you know, there wasn't ever really a, a sense of, oh, oh, is this the right thing to do? Or it's not the right thing to do. It just felt like this is what's going to happen this is what we have to do and it just felt right and didn't have didn't make any uh, if you go back and look at sales sales actually only increased so it was the right decision in terms of business and certainly was the right decision in terms of cr creative as well and it, and it meant that you could write a lot of articles differently um, instead of sort of tiptoying around certain things you could just write exactly what you wanted to write about whatever was going on or what might happen next or whatever. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was the right thing to do. But possibly we should have done it. I'm not sure if we should have done it a little bit earlier, maybe. But certainly um, it was the right thing to do um, at that time. Okay. Uh, going back to what you said earlier about one of the most difficult things being working all the time. So I imagine it's kind of easier now taking a more of a freelance role with your blog. And I mentioned before writing for Inside the Ropes. Yeah, oh, definitely. Yeah, I mean, as I was saying at the start of uh, at the start of the interview, I had the day off yesterday because we had this glorious weather in the, in the, the north of England, and I'm sure country uh, around the country. Uh, so it was just nice not to have to watch backlash yesterday, and and to be able to get out and do do something that wasn't wrestling related. Um, and and it just means that you've got more time to write things, and you do them when you want to do them, and it's not constantly. You know, in this constant treadmill to just turn stuff out, turn turn your articles around as quickly as you can. Um, so yeah, it's 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 really nice to be doing it part time, and um, you know, I'm enjoying writing about wrestling as much as I ever have. Um, I feel like um, I feel like there's still lots for me to do. I feel like there's still lots for me to say, uh, and I feel like there's lots of people that I haven't interviewed that I would like to interview. Got a couple of interviews hopefully lined up, up over the next month or so. I'm not going to say who they are just in case they don't happen, so I'm really excited uh, about those. It's for two, two uh, industry figures that I've personally never interviewed before, so I'm hoping they're going to come off. Um, but yeah, to just, just as I said earlier, the worst thing about Palestine was just constantly doing the long hours, seven-day weeks and everything, and I don't have to do that now. All right. And uh, while we're still talking about Inside the Ropes, uh, how did that kind of come about, you working along with them? Because I know Kenny said himself he's been a big uh, admirer of Power Slam. Yeah, well, he, what had happened was he was, as you know, he used to, he's been running Inside the Ropes for, I think, since about 2012, I think that's right. Yeah, I believe uh, yeah, January 2012, two, I believe. Yeah, 2012. So, um, I think when the first book came out, he um, I contacted everyone, tried to you know, do publicity for it, and I was I was on his podcast talking about the first book, and then I think we did a podcast on the second one as well in 2016. So I kept in touch with him, uh, and then he parted company 
with uh, with with uh, the firm that he worked in conjunction with for a while. I company with them last year, and um, I was in touch with him on on uh, through Facebook at the time. So I just got in touch with him, and said, "How are you doing?" Blah blah blah, and he said, "Do you fancy doing summer?" And I was like, "Well, yeah, yeah, all right then." And uh, so I think about two weeks later, the Power Slam podcast was launched. So it happened. It was as it was quickly as that, but that's how things go now in the in the modern world. Everything happens very quickly, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, as part of your work with him, said you got to interview James Ellsworth, and I was wondering if was that a Kenny decision? Did, were you keen to get back to interviewing again? Uh, I can't exactly. I can't remember whose idea that was. Um, I think it was sort of a joint decision, but yeah, it was. I was keen to interview him. I mean, he's a really nice guy, and um, it was um, it was a nice interview to do in the run up to his appearance in the UK. He did the show with Kenny in Glasgow, and then did the show with uh, IPW UK Milton Keynes, didn't he? Um, so, um, I mean, he's such a nice guy. I mean, um, it was a really fun interview to do. Um, and uh, yeah, it just felt like it was the first interview I'd done, I think, since Colt Cabana in this November, I think, 2016. I think it was the last interview I'd done prior to the James Ellsworth interview. So yeah, it just just felt like old times. So uh, yeah, I, I like doing these things. Um, I like doing interviews. They're they're really not that difficult to write up, and if you get a good interviewee who will answer all your questions and give you interesting answers, which I feel James did. It's it's a pleasure to do. I mean, it's you know, it's the greatest job in the world, really. Yeah, I've uh, read your interview. I, f- I find it very enjoyable, and uh, you tease kind of more interviews to come, and I look forward to doing them, as I'm sure many other people do as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, he was. I mean, James is a guy that uh, what struck me was about it was when I asked him uh, when he started training when he was 17 with Axel Rotten, and I was like, well. Did you? How far did you really think you could get in the wrestling business? And in all honesty, he said WWE, and you're thinking, really? And Axel Rotten tells him, well, you don't have much of a look, kid. Uh, maybe a bit ambitious. And he, and he made it. And I mean, it's just like, I mean, it's just incredible, really. Okay, he was only there like a year under contract. Um, but I mean, he made some good money there. He certainly upped his profile. He's working full-time on the indie circuit doing stuff in the states and around the world so and and as you said he, he doesn't feel like this as he said in the interview he didn't feel like the story had ended and that there was a possibility that one day he could go back to wwe i don't know whether he'll go back full-time but you can certainly see him going back to do the odd appearance which when you're involved with that company increases your profile increases your market value and makes you more employable on the independent circuit so i mean good for him i mean he's he's a guy that i'm sure everyone told him along the way you'll never work for wwe and he proved them wrong so good for him yeah it was uh, it was nice to see now when you talk about your you talked about in power slam interviews volume one that you knew right away that you were you again i had to do a sequel to it but imagine 20 years worth of interviews putting them together choosing the best ones can't have been an easy task it wasn't really that difficult. Um, I mean, there was there was there was like a lot of historical figures who had to be in there. So if we talk about the second one, like Bruno San Martino, the Oliver Hurley's interview from two thousand nine. I mean, that was such an epic interview, and Bruno is obviously such a huge figure. I would say one of the three most important figures in the history of that company, apart from Vin, apart from the 
and of course three most important wrestlers I should say in the history of that company so I mean that had to go in there uh, Harley, this, I'm talking about Power Slam interviews volume 2 here Harley Race guy I got such respect for he was such an important figure in the NWA such an amazing performer and as I wrote in my intro to the uh, Harley Race interview I remember when I started watching American wrestling in 1988, I didn't really rate race at all. I just thought, who's this guy? Who's this veteran? You know, what's he doing? And you go back, you know, what's he doing in this company? He's never going to beat Hulk Hogan. He's never going to do this. He's never going to do that. And you go back and watch him now, older and wiser, and understanding, hopefully, how wrestling works. And you look at him and you think, wow, this guy was just so good. Even in... Even in like 1988 or 1989, when he was really at the end of his career, he was such an amazing performer. So it was, it was, it was including an interview with Harley Race was a must to me. Not just because the interview I think was was so historically significant, and he's such an important figure in the history of the business, but also to give him proper respect in the introduction, which I'd never really done because by the time. I think I had written about race a few times, but I'd never done a big feature on him. I think I might have done one right at the end of Superstars of Wrestling, but I'd never done a really big feature on him uh, in Power Slam. So that was my tribute to him. Um, you know, so it was it was really nice to do that. Um, and other people like in the in the uh, in the second interviews book, interviews with Raven. That was a Greg Lambert interview. He did a really good job on that from 2005. Uh, I interviewed Samoa Joe, and um, he, by the time the second book came out in 2017, Samoa Joe was in the WWE system, so that then took on a, a, a different significance. I, I, for many years, Samoa Joe, I'm sure you'll agree with me, Scott, for many years, Samoa Joe seemed like a sort of guy that wouldn't have been picked up by WWE. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, in fact, in 2000, I think it was Mick Foley who famously championed Samoa Joe to Vince McMahon and Triple H and said, this is a guy you need to hire. And I think he showed Vince and Triple H one of the Samoa Joe CM Punk matches. And they're like, well, he's not a guy that we would, that we were going to entertain, thank you. And so he ended up signing with TNA in 2005. Uh, by the time Palestine Interviews Volume 2 came out in 2017, Samoa Joe's in the WWE system. So you've got a story there in itself. And if you go back and look at the interview that I did with him when he was working for TNA, uh, certainly the first one, he was not complimentary towards WWE at all. And then in the second interview I did with him the following year, he kind of changed his tune a little bit. Maybe he'd smartened up to the political aspects and was thinking ahead. So that was that was really interesting to take an interview that was done many years earlier when he was in a different part of his career uh, and then writing your intro and setting you up, offering proper context of, as to the time when this was recorded versus where he is now that was the the thing that was very interesting same with the bruno thing when we did the interview with bruno in 2000 when oliver hurley did the interview with bruno in 2009 he was at war with wwe i mean the the, the bile there the heat between the two was just intense jump to 2013 the war's over i mean still to this day the most amazing thing i've ever seen was bruno going back to wwe uh, and standing there on the stage at Madison Square Garden with Vince McMahon, when you think of how long they were off, nearly 26 years, and then they finally buried the hatchet and Bruno was inducted into the Hall of Fame. So interviews like that were just, they were no-brainers. I mean, they were really good interviews, 
but you had a story to write prior to the interview that was a fascinating story. Uh, one of the interviews I didn't include was with Brett Hart from issue 48 of Power Slam. That was my first interview with Brett. Uh, issue 48 of Power Slam was published in, I think it was June of 98. So we're only like six months on from uh, six, seven months on from the double cross, Montreal double cross, Survivor Series 1997, as if I need to tell anyone. Um, and um, I didn't include that interview in the book because I would have had to have gone through the whole double cross story again. Brett going to WCW, Brett having a terrible time in WCW, his career ending, you know, him being at odds with Vince McMahon, then finally coming back to going to the Hall of Fame in 2006, which, of course, was the precursor to him coming back and doing whatever the hell it was he did in 2010. You can't really call it wrestling because Brett couldn't take any bumps. So to include that interview from 1998 when he was working for WCW and we were talking about the double cross and his whole attitude towards everything then, to include that in a book that would have come out after he'd gone back to WWE, to me, I didn't really want to write that story again. I felt like I'd written it umpteen times and I didn't really feel like I could bring anything new to it. Um, most stories you can. Most stories you can find a new way to write them. Um, there's there's a, there's new um, there's there's further layers of analysis you can add. But with Brett, I just think it's just all been done. I don't really see how there's anything else you can write about him. So I didn't include that interview. And some people are like, well, why not? Because it was an important interview at the time, and it would have been fascinating to read his room for the people who didn't have that copy of the magazine. It would have been fascinating to read that interview in 2016 or 2017 um, and, and read what his feelings were in 98. So I can understand why people felt that I, that was an omission that I shouldn't have made and the heart interview should have been in there. And I do get that, absolutely get that uh, argument. But I just, I just couldn't go through it again. I just couldn't write that story about Brett again. I just feel like I've written it so many times and I can't face writing it again. A um, couple of the interviews that were in Power Slam Interviews Volume 2 uh, were with Nigel McGuinness. Um, and um, I spoke to him after his career had ended and he did the last of McGuinness documentary, hadn't got to WWE, that whole story there of everything that went down. So he was in a very different place then to how he was in 2017 when the Power Slam Interviews Volume 2 was published because at that point he'd just signed with WWE as a commentator. So that was really nice to include those interviews with Nigel from I think it was 2012 and 2013, the two interviews. Um, and he was in a very different place to how he was when the book came out. And that was a real happy ending. That was, I mean, I always I interviewed Nigel McGuinness quite a few times. He was a guy that I kept in touch with. Uh, such a nice guy. Guy that was an incredible talent and didn't make it to WWE for reasons that are explained in great detail in those interviews. Uh, and it was such a shame for him that he, he didn't get there. He didn't make it uh, as a wrestler. And then finally in 2017, he got there as a commentator and he's doing really well for himself. So that was really uplifting as well. I'm sure you'd agree with that, Scott. I mean, it's really nice to tell those stories of guys who have the talent, missed out, but in the end, it all comes good for them. So that was a, that was a really nice story to tell. Yeah, it was 
was very uplifting and we talk about Brett like obviously what really more can you add all these years later that hasn't already been said so uh, you can understand why you didn't feel the need to include that interview but were there any other interviews that you didn't include that you think really you wish you had room for but just uh, I don't know really uh, I don't, I'm not sure can you think of any off the top of your head that, that, that merited a place in either book not off the top of my head no no um that probably i mean the thing was there was we did another i did another interview with mick foley in issue 109 it was and that was pretty good uh, but i felt that foley had been already been represented and that the interviews i did include were more historically significant than that one so that was pretty good and there's quite a few interviews over the years that were good interviews but you look back at them and think well it doesn't really translate that well to to 2016 or 2017 when the books were released. And I think the interviews I've included are ones where you go back and you can read them. You could read them a year from now, two years from now, three years from now, and they'd still mean something. And some interviews, and this is not the fault of the interviewer, and it's certainly not the fault of the interviewee, it's just the way it is sometimes, is that you'll do an interview and it just won't be as good as another interview uh, I mean Greg Lambert did the interview uh, with Paul London that was in uh, that was in the first book that was in the first yeah. uh, interviews book and uh, I mean and that was just I remember at the time just being blown away by that interview it was just one of the most amazing things I'd ever read and then I interviewed Paul London for the Power Slam website in I think it was 2014 I think it was and again, it was a re- it was a really good interview, but sort of Paul had sort of mellowed, and he was in for him personally, he was in a much better place in his life because when he when we interviewed him originally for the uh, for the interview that went out in Palestine magazine, he still held a grudge against WWE, and that's what made that interview so damn entertaining, and just so it just took your breath away the stuff he was coming out with. So when I interviewed him a few years later for interview that just went on the website um he was he calmed down a lot he mellowed a lot and he was at peace really with his wwe run and that's really good for him and i'm happy for him that that he is because no one wants to carry around all that anger and rage or resentment or whatever you want to call it it's not good for you um so i thought it was a really good interview that i did with him 2014 for the palestine interviews but he couldn't hold a candle to Greg Lambert's interview with him, uh, and and you know that Greg did a really good job on that. Of course he did, but the, the, it was Paul that really made the interview so amazing because his answers were just were just you know mind bending, you know just incredible, just like just is a guy that's almost like he's got like a, a score to settle with WWE, and he and he really settled it. I felt in that in that interview, you know. So often it's the circumstances and the timing, and that's something that you can't always control. Um, certainly, if you look back at some of the interviews I did, like the famous Brian Pillman one from 1996, which is in the Power Slam Interviews Volume 2, the timing of that was incredible. Did the interview the day before he signed with WWF. The Chris Jericho interview from 99, that was in the Power Slam Interviews Volume 1, timing of that was amazing as well that was just before he was, he was working for wcw when we spoke and he signed 
with WWF. I can't remember when it was. It's just it was. I think it was less than two weeks later, or possibly the following week. It was again. Uh, uh, the timing of it was just amazing. And these are these are the moments. You know, I was saying earlier, what were the highlights of running Power Slam? Getting that killer interview. Uh, also getting that killer interview uh, that's, that takes place uh, uh, on a date that is historically significant for the wrestler's career. Those are some of the, the great moments that you look back and think, wow, you know. Sometimes you say, oh, well, that was luck, but often it isn't luck because you know that they're in negotiations with these two companies or three companies or whatever, and you know you've only got a certain window of opportunity before when you can speak to them to get that interview, because back in the 90s, when a wrestler was under contract to WWF, it was very, very difficult getting an interview with them, almost impossible. But if they were a WCW or ECW or whatever, they would speak to you. So you had to get them just before they signed the contract. So I was always very proud of the timing of those two interviews with Pillman and Jericho because they occurred just before they signed with WWF. Um, but yeah, it's... It's you've. It's partly good luck, but it's partly. I'm a big believer in you in, in life. Many times you make your own luck. Uh, so, uh, so it was lucky that they spoke to us. But had we had I not really pushed for it with the help of George Tahinas, I think he was the one that really helped the Brian helped me on the Brian Pillman interview. I can't remember who was who it was that helped me make the Chris Jericho interview happen. But whoever it was, I thank them uh, and between your um, overtures to, to get the inter- make the interview happen and the people you have helping you, it's a big part of that as well. It's, it's you know, you are also responsible for, for the good fortune here. You make it happen. It's not going to come to you. It's kind of a case of a right place, right time in these cases. Right place, right time, yeah, that's right. But at the same time, you, you know, it's like anything in life. You've got to... You've got to try, you know, you can't just expect it to fall in your lap. There's a lot of responsibility upon you to try and make things better for yourself. And certainly in the wrestling business, um, no one's going to, unless you've already built up a star and drawing power and everything, then opportunities will come your way. But you've got to have built up to that point in the first place where you're valuable to someone. Um, so a lot of it, you know, the onus is definitely upon you to make things happen. Um, so yeah. Yeah, uh, you have a there's a really good section in the first time interviews at the end, uh, interviews that never were, where you kind of explain what uh, people you were hoping to interview but never fell through for whatever reason. Are there any of those people that you kind of regret that you never got the chance to interview, that, that things never went to plan? Well, yeah, I mean, there's loads of people. I mean, uh, I mean, you'll have read the story about uh, superstar Graham. I mean, that was just—I I have no idea what his game was there, and uh, you would not believe the amount of time I wasted on that. In the end, he didn't speak to me. That was his choice. Uh, if he didn't want to do the interview, it would have just been nice if he just told me in the first place. Then I wouldn't have wasted my time and his. Uh, so there were definitely were interviews uh, that I would like to have got. I, I think uh, Rick Rude is one that I named. And I look back and think, well, why the hell didn't I pursue that? When he was working for ECW, I could have got the interview with him then. I have no idea why I didn't pursue that one. Uh, Kurt Hennig was another one that I never really pursued. Don't know why. Uh, and you look back and think, oh, what an interview that could have been. Um, 
not sure why I didn't pursue either of those. Um, Ollie Anderson was a guy, as I, as I said in, in I wrote in the second book, I believe it was. Uh, Ollie Anderson was the guy that I wanted to interview the most, and never that we never did. Oliver Hurley tried to get an interview with him. I forget which year it was, but going back, well, going back many years anyway, when we were in Power Sam, uh, Oliver Hurley inquired, uh, and we were told uh, that Ollie wasn't available for interviews. Um, so that was disappointing. Uh, I inquired as well uh, later. It didn't happen. Fair enough. If you don't want to speak to us for, for, for whatever reason, I know a lot of it was health-related. That's absolutely fine. Uh, so I'm not knocking him for that at all. They, they were absolutely straight with us and said they, they didn't want to do the interview. That's absolutely fine. Uh, but that, it was disappointing that that didn't happen. I think those interviews could have been... could have been An interview with Ollie Anderson could have been really good. Um, there's... Who else, let me think, uh, would I like to have interviewed? Um, I mean, you look at someone like Bob Backlund and you think, I, had, I, I did actually inquire about doing an interview with Bob Backlund. That didn't go anywhere. I don't know whether that really would have been that good. Uh, so sometimes I think I think the industry sort of deals you, uh, the industry sort of is helping you out by not, uh, granting you the interview with someone that might not be such a good interview. Um, I mean, of course, you, you never know how good something's going to be until you try it or get the interview. But you look at Bob Backlund, maybe that's one that I'll try for again in future. Uh, Pat Patterson's one that I certainly would like to do at some point. Um, I'm hoping that's going to happen. Maybe it will this year. We'll see about that. You think of, you, I mean, Pat Patterson was such an amazing performer as a wrestler, just incredible worker. And he's obviously had, what will it be, over 30 years working alongside Vince McMahon in, in various capacities. Um, he became Vince's uh, right-hand man. I forget which year it was, maybe about 86, 86, something, somewhere around about there. Yeah, he replaced George Scott anyway. Um, so Pat Patterson's one that I, that I hope will still happen one day. Um, and obviously there's a, lot, there's a huge wave of newcomers coming up now um, and there's, there's there's so much talent out there that in years to come will have had will have had longer careers because I mean the thing is you don't want to speak to someone if you're speaking to someone earlier in the career it's a different interview obviously to an interview with somebody um, who's a veteran so in many ways you want to you want to do the interview when the when when the younger because there's so full of hope and it's a different interview but it's good really interviewing uh, a guy later in his career as well. Like, for instance, when Fergal Devitt's uh, WWE run ends, I would it would be amazing to get another interview with him. I interviewed him, I think, three times for Power Salmon. Or Oliver Hurley did the very first interview uh, that we did with him back in issue 171, I think it was. But I think I interviewed Fergal about three times after that. Um, so I'd like to interview him again after he leaves WWE. So I think that would be fascinating. What do you think, Scott? That would be a really interesting interview, wouldn't it? Well, yeah, because given like different, uh, he's different now than he was back then. Say like when he did the Austin interview for '94, he was much different, even a few years later from how he was at that time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean that that interview from the WCW interview. I mean he was so pissed off with the way things were going. Uh, and understandably so. I mean, let's face it, Eric Bischoff did him a huge favour when he fired him the following year. Uh, and I know Austin now f fully accepts that. that for, for a while, he did carry around quite a lot of resentment. But the fact 
he was fired over the phone by Eric Bischoff. Um, but I mean, it ended up being hugely advantageous for him because then he went work for ECW, worked for WWF. Ringmaster thing, of course, didn't work. But then became Stone Cold Steve Austin. It was May, was it May about May of '96? Then King of the Ring '96 won that with a big promo and blah blah blah, and everybody knows what happens after that. So it's it, that was one of those interviews we were talking about earlier. It was historically significant uh, and, and and a real fascinating time capsule, really, because you've got Austin at a time in his career when he's struggling creatively in WCW. The Hogan at that point was all powerful. He'd only been in WCW for, I think the interview was, took place in November of 94. So Hogan had arrived in, was it May? Well, June officially was his mm. first appearance, wasn't it? June of 94. So it's, that's right. So we're talking like basically six months into the Hogan uh, experiment. No one really knew how long that was going to last. Hogan had brought his buddies in, like Brewers Beefcake and. Um, John Tenter and, and, and their ilk and a lot of the longtime WCW performers such as Austin were then demoted as a result because Hogan wanted his buddies on top with him um, so it was fascinating to go back and read that interview again and uh, for a, with a guy that I mean it was it was hard really to work out where Austin was going to go. No one, you think, oh yeah, Austin was guaranteed top card material. It was going to be a main event. It was going to be this, it's going to be that. Uh, and I could definitely see huge potential in Austin back in 1994, but it seemed very difficult to imagine how he was going to realize this with all the forces in WCW who were basically suppressing him, holding him down. Um, and he was sort of, because WCW was the first company he'd worked for that paid him real money, um, he was he did still have some loyalty to the company at that point. So it was it was very difficult, really, to see. And also, you've got to remember, this is late 94, early 95 time. WWF was not doing well. You know, the mid-card guys were not making a lot of money. So the money that Austin was making back then would have been more than he... In, than he would have made in a comparable position working for Vince McMahon. That's another thing that you've got to bear in mind. So it was fascinating, really, to read that interview from 94 with Austin, because you think to yourself, well, where, where does this go? Where's he going from here? Where, and more to the point, where can he go? How can his position be improved from here? You've got wrestling in general in a major lull. Um, no one knew that we were going to have this uh, massive boom period from... 96, 97, 98, 99 and onwards, no one could have predicted that. And in fact, many people were sort of predicting that the business may not even last that much longer back then. So it was very interesting to include that interview from a very different time in Austin's career and a very different time for pro wrestling. Yeah, uh, I believe this next question might have been asked before, but if so, I apologise. But uh, now obviously the Power Slam interviews, long one during the pro wrestling for the Power Slam years, done as ebooks. Uh, why was it this decision rather than a regular like paperback book? Uh, well, the whole idea of them was, was all three of them are, are huge. All three of them are enormous books. Uh, and I looked into the I looked into doing them as paperbacks, and the ex, and the expense was going to be it was going to be basically cost prohibitive. Um, I'm not saying that I am going to release them as printed books, but that's something that I'm going to be looking into to see if it is viable. Uh, but it was a financial thing, really, just 
because if you're putting a book out, it's got to be at a reasonable price, otherwise people are not going to buy it. If you're selling as an electronic book, you can sell it for 5.49 or 6.49 um, because you don't have those production costs. You don't have all the other costs that are involved with a printed book. So the idea was I was going to do these books that were all going to be huge with the idea that they would just be released as e-books because there wasn't going to be that production cost. Had I intended to release them as printed books, then they would have had to have been a lot smaller. So that was my thinking at the time. But I am going to be reviewing this and we'll be looking into this and seeing if I can make it work. So I, I'm just going to leave the answer there if that's all right with you, Scott. Yeah, that's okay. Uh, I've seen on your website you were advertising a, a new ebook, a non-wrestling one called Packing It In, where you delve into Quentin Smoking, which I read the description and it seems uh, quite interesting. One, Why was it you feel it's the right time to release a book like that? Well, I mean, the thing, I mean, the thing is when you write about something that, you, that you're not really hugely knowledgeable about, knowledgeable about, you have to be careful that it doesn't become an exercise in self-indulgence. And it's very possible that this will be one of those. Uh, it was so much just I've had an idea for doing for years. I was I was a smoker back in the 90s, really loved smoking. I just can't tell you how much I enjoyed smoking. And the whole process of quitting, uh, I did it on the first attempt, and I just set it all up in my mind how I was going to do it, and I did it on willpower without any you know, basically setting up my circumstances so my circumstances would be favourable and they would enable me to succeed in my quest to quit. Uh, so the whole idea of it is just really telling my story of how I did it. Uh, but I'm very mindful uh, as, I'm, as I'm writing this, and I seem to have been writing it for a very long time. <laughs> I keep going back to it, and then I have all the distractions with wrestling-related things. Um, I... I am very aware that it could just be not very good and I'm not doing a very good job of sell selling this here, but this is something that I've never done before. And I think you need to have this awareness in life that just because you can write about something well doesn't mean that you can write about everything well, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Yeah. So, uh, so I've done, I, I have written quite a bit of it. I'm happy with what I've written so far. I've set myself a deadline in my mind of when I have to have it finished by. I'm not going to tell you what that deadline is. I've set myself a deadline in my mind of when I have to have it finished. Uh, and if I don't finish it by then, I'm going to put it on the back burner and I'm going to get cracking on my next wrestling book. And how's about that setting up your next yeah. question, Scott? Yeah, there's a perfect segue into my next question. Because, <laughs> yeah, we, talked, we kind of talked a bit about it earlier in one of the earlier questions. And one of my other questions, sorry, about people having kind of a stigma towards this and people who aren't fans of it and you even suggested writing a book about it on an episode uh, of the Power Slam podcast are you any further is this something you're serious about doing yeah 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 absolutely yeah it's yeah I mean yeah, the working title is going to be called The Scorn Why Do People Have Such Contempt for Pro Wrestling and it's and it's the whole idea of it is is that throughout all my years as a fan and as somebody who has worked on the fringes of wrestling in the magazine industry. Obviously, I'm still in the magazine industry now with WrestleTalk magazine, which I'm very proud to be writing for. Um, it's got such a stigma as pro wrestling with people, and, and it just, and I kind of understand why it has. But then if I analyze it in great detail, I think to myself, well, why has it got such a stigma? I mean, 
pro wrestling's not pretending to be a real sport anymore. And this this will be something. Yeah, you know, if you go back to the eighties when I was watching wrestling, pro wrestlers had to kayfabe. It had been drummed into them that they had to do this. And if they didn't do this, the entire industry would fold. It would fail. It would descend. It would descend into the abyss and exist no more because we had to maintain the illusion. And that was the way it was. But then, if you to roll it back years prior to that, it was even worse. I mean, you'll have read the Honky Tonk Man interview in um, Power Slam Interviews Volume Two. You'll have read that. What have you got? Sadly, no. I've uh, I've read most of Power Slam Interviews One when I haven't got round to Volume Two. I'm sorry to say. <laughs> right, okay. Well, um, Wayne Farris and I, it, it was in the Power Slam Interviews Volume 2, the Honky Tonk Man interview, to me, was was one of the best interviews I've ever done. And there's another amazing one in there with Daphne, which is a very different interview to the interview with Wayne Farris, Honky Tonk Man. But as far as Honky Tonk Man one goes, we got talking about Kev Fabe, and he came up in the territorial era in the 70s. And he talked at length about the way things were back then and how he couldn't tell his parents that pro wrestling was a work. Um, and you think to yourself, how, how is that possible? That's just the way things were back then. So I kind of understand why the general public disliked pro wrestling in the 70s and the 80s, in the era where pro wrestlers were instructed uh, to kayfabe at all times because the general public would think hang on a minute we know it's not we know this is not a real sport we know it's not it's obviously not a real sport so if you sit there and tell me that it is it insults my intelligence so i kind of understand why there was tremendous uh, there was the, the scorn existed back then towards pro wrestling i do get that so there's going to be there's going to be parts on that you try and you fast fast forward to late nineties and suddenly throughout the two thousands and the two thousand tens, no one's pretending that pro wrestling is a real sport anymore, and yet it still has this stigma. I mean, I feel it all the time. I'm sure you do as well, Scott. And you, and you think, well, why? You know, why is pro wrestling treated this way? So there's lots of aspects to the book. There's there's a flip side to it as well, of course, and that is that in many ways, pro wrestling because people look down upon it in many ways pro wrestling has got away with a lot of things that a real sport wouldn't because people don't expect much from it so in some ways it sort of cuts both ways where pro wrestling because of the attitudes towards it um has been given an easy ride on many things um and it's going to also be analysis of the way uh people in wrestling behave and and in many ways you, you think of the way that a lot of people in wrestling behave, and you look at, to me, the longest running feud in pro wrestling history is Vince McMahon versus the fans. And he just is, and you think of some of the things he does and some of the things he inflicts upon us as fans, and you think maybe Vince is the guy who's the one who's got the, even though he's the, he's the number one guy in pro wrestling ever, you think about it, you think, well, Christ, he's got some scorn for us with some of the things he does. Maybe we're the victims of it as fans, and maybe we're taking it from the inside from people who are running the business. So you've got that layer of it as well. I think it's a fascinating story. There's so many different ways it can go. I haven't really worked out a plan for it yet. I've got a rough one. I sort of know how I'm going to start it, and I'm just going to take it from there. But I think it can be a fascinating book, uh, and I'm looking forward to getting started on, getting started on it. Uh, also, I have an idea for a series of books as well, which will be a, 
a lot easier to produce. I'm not going to tell you what that series is because I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I've got an idea for a series of books that I'm planning on doing, uh, which hopefully I'll get started on, if not this year, certainly early next year. Uh, and that's something that I'm excited about as well. So, uh, so yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Interesting, and I'm sure maybe look forward to, to reading them. Um, my last question is kind of a two-part question. Where it's uh, how often I'm sure people often come to you having written for so long about trying to get advice about writing and journalism in general. So how often do people kind of come to you asking for your advice about writing, and what are kind of the questions they ask you most frequently? Well, the the truth is, very few people ask me for advice about any any such things. <laughs> it's I mean, years ago when I was running Palestine, people would inquire, but they just wanted to write for the magazine. So now I'm not in a position where I'm offering jobs to people. I don't really get too many inquiries of that type anymore. Um, so I don't really, not, not many people really ask me for advice about it. So that's that's your answer. It's a bit of a crappy answer, yeah. I'm afraid. <laughs> Sorry about that. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> but, I mean, the, the thing is now, it's it's tricky because it's hard, it's much more difficult to make money out of writing about wrestling than it was at one point. Uh, and that's that's just the way it is. Those are changing times. And it's easy to put a book out there. Anyone can write a book and publish it on, on the Kindle or, or have it printed up through, I think it's uh, Lulu or whatever. There's, anyone can sort of do that, but making money out of it's not that easy. Uh, and, uh yeah, they wrap it up soon, but uh, you've been talking a lot about your ebooks. But if uh, some of our listeners didn't know where to get these ebooks, and also after this interview, probably will hopefully want to read some of those. Where could they? Uh, where could they do that? Where can they find it? Well, they're available worldwide from Amazon, iBooks, and Kobo. Uh, the first one was Pro Wrestling Through the Power Slam Years, 1994 to 2014. That came out in September of 2015. Then there was a Power Slam Interviews Volume 1 that came out in uh, June of 2016. And then there's the Power Slam Interviews Volume 2, and that came out in March of 2017. Uh, so as I say, yeah, just go onto Amazon, iBooks or Kobo, and um, and they're available there. And if you don't have a Kindle, that doesn't matter. You can download for free the Kindle app for whichever device you have and read the books through that. So don't give me that. I don't have a Kindle, so I can't buy it. Excuse, because it does not wash. <laughs> Thank, uh, thanks very much for, for joining me, Finn. This has been a really insightful interview. Yeah, I, I thought it was all right. There's a couple of moments there where I sort of felt like I was also rambling. But then again, maybe that was in keeping with the, with the theme of the podcast, right? Yeah, yeah. you set it in very well. <laughs>